Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jeff Bristol, and today we'll be talking to Professor Joanna Davidson, a professor of anthropology at Boston University, about her new book, Sacred Rice. Sacred Rice is a book about change. The Jola, a people living in Guinea-Bissau, have long cultivated rice and formed their social identity around its growth. But recent changes in climate, economic, political, and social circumstances have rendered this a precarious existence. As a result, individuals from the village where Professor Davidson has spent years conducting in-depth ethnographic fieldwork have been forced to integrate not just to the outside world, but to changes in their own society. How these changes have affected them and how they have dealt with them, along with what this means in terms of our thinking about development theory and social change in general, form the major theme of this excellent research book that tells us about the history of rice in Africa, West Africa generally, and about a village in particular. Today, we'll talk to her about how she found the village where she did her fieldwork, how she became interested in the topic, what the Jola as a people are like, the changes they are experiencing, as well as what we might learn about the Jola and even ourselves. Thank you, Professor Davidson, for joining us here on New Books in Anthropology. I hope uh, everything is going well in Boston and that it's not too cold. It, it's it's getting a little colder. It's nice to be able to talk to you um, again about this. And thanks for inviting me to be on uh, this podcast. Yeah, well, thank you for coming. It's uh, I'm really excited to have you on. And it's, it's a really interesting book about a, about a part of Africa that not a lot of people study. So uh, so that's that's always great. So I was wondering if you could just start off by telling us a little bit about uh, the book, really uh, your field work, where it was and, and how did you come to get there? Uh, sure. So let me start with that that last piece of the question. How did I come to get there? It was a complete accident. I never intended to go um, certainly to this part of Guinea-Bissau um, and really initially not to Guinea-Bissau at all. Um, when I started graduate school in anthropology, my uh, focus was really on what was then Zaire, now the Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC. And I had proposed a project um, that was looking at um, the uh, both the history and the and the current kind of iterations of various ethnic based what was being called um, ethnic based clashes um, in the Shaba province. And during my first year of graduate school, um, Zaire imploded and um, and is continuing to um, kind of sort out and uh, and and really um, kind of um, continuing to reel from all of the the that ensued from there. It was when um, uh, Mobutu. Uh, was finally deposed. And there's been a lot of political confusion since then, a lot of upheaval in the population. And it became clear pretty early on that I wasn't going to be able to go there. And that's pretty typical for anthropology, right? Um, a lot of things shift on the ground that make it either um, uh, unsafe or or no longer um, possible for all kinds of reasons to do um, really grounded long-term ethnographic work. So I just started to look elsewhere. And I was really, again, focused on topics of uh, what was being called across the continent um, ethnic conflict. And I spent my first couple of summers um, in graduate school 
kind of traipsing around West Africa. Um, and uh, in one of those moments um, happened um, to cross the border into Guinea-Bissau. And it was, um, this was in the summer of 1999 um, in June. And I um, arrived there about a week after the last day of the 1998 um, to 99, 11, it was an 11 month um, civil war, a very popular um, uprising in the country that had just ended. And, and it was a, since it was a popular uprising that ended with a result that at the time people were quite happy with, um, it was a really euphoric moment to be there. Um, and I was kind of instantly entranced with, again, a place, as you said, not many people um, go to, not many people have even heard about, um, even other people who spend lifetimes of working in Africa and either e- even many other Africans um, would be hard pressed to find Guinea-Bissau on a map. Um, but when I arrived there, um, it was really a, a, a kind of a, a, a fascinating moment, a uh, fascinating time to be there. And people really wanted to talk. Um, they had been involved in uh, what was a, um, a major um, a conflict, a shift in their own national politics, and they were really eager to talk to a, um, a strange foreigner about it. And that's a real bonus for, for an anthropologist arriving um, in a new place. Um, it happened that it, it's, a, it's a former Portuguese colony. So the, the official language there is Portuguese, which I already spoke because I had worked in Brazil for quite a while um, prior to graduate training in anthropology. So I was able to quickly um, pick up on the local variant of Portuguese there. It's a Portuguese Creole. Um, and that really facilitated a lot of um, really interesting conversations right right off the bat. And then I kind of got more and more interested in what was going on there and what the history of this place had been, what its current dynamics were. Um, and again, it kind of happened upon a region of the country, um, the northwest, all the way up, right up, up against the border with Senegal, um, where some other kind of interesting dynamics were playing themselves out still around the topic of ethnic conflict. So I originally went to this area, um, and particularly this village that in the book I call Esana, to look at the uh, at, at a recent conflict that had happened between the two main population groups there. And I ended up not doing anything really about that topic. So I shifted my focus both geographically and then eventually topically, again, um, in line with what people there were really concerned about, which was this growing, intensifying pressure around um, maintaining a livelihood strategy around rice cultivation that they had um, really built up over many centuries. So, so that's how I got there. It was serendipitous. It was unexpected and shifted constantly in terms of what the real focus of the um, I, it's a long it's a long story, but it's not actually um, a an atypical one. For, for anthropology, um, again, we, we, we not only have to kind of pivot around changing circumstances on the ground, but I think especially in places where there's not a whole lot of uh, uh, international focus, certainly media attention or other kinds of focus on what's going on there, often we don't know until we get there what really are the, the, the most kind of pressing and germane issues that are relevant for ethnographic study. So it wasn't really until I was kind of immersed there that I that I started looking at some of these issues around um, changes in livelihood practices um, and, and around a, a, a kind of a um, cultivation um, scheme that I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know anything about race. I hadn't, I was not a, an environment. I hadn't been trained as an environmental anthropologist or an agronomist. Um, so I learned those things in the process of doing field work there. 
Yeah, that's that's very interesting. You know, um, I uh, I myself had a, a similar story when I came to BU. I was originally going to do Afghanistan, and I was talked out of that by several people who pointed out it would probably be difficult for me to travel in the country. Then I moved to Mauritania, and then I settled on doing my field work in the United States. So it's kind of funny how we often take little trips in, in figuring out what's going to be best for us and where to work. So I was wondering... You did most of your work around the Jola. Who are the Jola and what kind of typifies their lives? I know you mentioned rice is a major part of it. Yeah. So Jola is um, is an, a, a language group, an ethnic group um, that spans um, from the Gambia, um, which uh, kind of is a, a finger jutting into the middle of Senegal, through southern Senegal, where they're the that's the, the highest concentration um of uh, Jola speakers um, is in the Casamance region of southern Senegal, and then into northwestern Guinea-Bissau, which is where I I hang out most of the time when I'm doing field work. So that's so I work with the southernmost subgroup of of um, Jola, and so so like many coastal West African groups, the longer term history, the, the the sort of further back history of Jola, um, uh, similar to a lot of their neighboring groups, that they're uh, they began more in the interior, pre-colonially um, in West Africa, and because of a series of um, migration shifts and uh, increasing kind of um, a, a political impact of the pre-colonial states um, in the West African re- region, were pushed further and further towards the coast. But from all historical and archaeological evidence, they've been in this region along the Upper Guinea coast, so Gambia, southern Senegal, Guinea-Bissau, for about a thousand years, and during that time is really where they developed um, their their trademark um, agricultural practice that's linked to all of their other social, political, religious domains around wet rice agriculture. So this is a mangrove area. Um, it's a it is um, uh, it's an area that ha- that is um, filled with kind of estuaries of of mangroves and then very dense oil palm forests. And um, the the Jola and other ethnic groups in the area, including Balanta um, and Manjaco and and others um, all along the coast, use the kind of floodplain in this area to do an intensive kind of wet rice agriculture, which relies on heavy rainfall um, that uh, washes out the saltier parts of the mangrove area, but makes it uh, really wonderfully fertile, um, up until recently, wonderful, wonderfully fertile terrain for growing a lot of rice. Um, I should point out here that, the, that, um, that this whole coast, um, this whole part of West Africa, um, was known for a while as the, the rice or the grain coast in the early part of European ex- exploration and eventually colonialism of the area. It was known for its abundant rice production among all the groups in that area. Um, and rice, uh, I mean, most people think about rice as an Asian crop. Um, it's, it's mo- you know, in the kind of um, popular imaginary, rice is something that you get, you know, with, with Asian food. Um, in fact, uh, rice was independently domesticated in West Africa um, about 3,500 or 4,000 years ago, around that time. And the, the cultigen that um, the West African rice cultivators used for a very, very long time was a different cultigen than the Asian rice crop. It actually has a different botanical name, a different kind of species. Um, they now mostly use uh, either a hybrid or 
um, varieties of the Asian cultivin It's a it's a Rissa sativa, but but they did originally use their own uh, cultivin, their own domesticated rice um, grain, and and have a number of really sophisticated um, methods for cultivating it within this kind of mangrove area. So Jola are you know, known for rice cultivation. Um, they're also um, their the the language um, Jola is is uh, split into several different kinds of um, subgroups, uh, different dialectical forms. They're mutually intelligible up to a certain point, but it's also a highly varied language, even from village to village. Um, and they have a um, religious system that's pretty um, uh, similar in its traditional form across these three different countries. They have a supreme deity called Emitai and a number of um, spirit shrines, a spirit shrine based religion. Um, but more, somewhat more recently, different subgroups within Jola have converted either to Islam um, or to Christianity. Um, the group that I work with most closely in Guinea-Bissau uh, is the it has um, has been the most resistant to conversion to either Islam or Christianity, and they still the majority of them, about ninety percent of them um, within the area that the set of villages where I do field work um, practice predominantly practice the Jola traditional religion. Why do you think that this group in particular has been so resistant to religious conversion? Um, it's a good question. Um, well, it partly has to do with the differences um, just in, in, in what happened in the colonial and post-colonial history um, across these three countries. Uh, so um, part of the, the, you know, the differences, whether in religious or political or economic life among the, the the various Jola groups that happen to reside either in Gambia, Senegal, or Guinea-Bissau have to do with what happened um, once Europeans really um, were were um, dominant politically and economically in the area, and then how that kind of came together with various different kinds of uh, religious institutions. So, so that happened in different ways in Gambia and Senegal than it did in Guinea-Bissau. Um, but even prior to European involvement, uh, uh, um, there were um, Islamic um, conversion efforts throughout this West African region, throughout the Sahel too, um, that really influenced um, the northern groups of Jola much more. Um, uh, although it still wasn't until around the 1930s that the the majority of northern Jola subgroups had um, been fully Islamicized. Um, in in the the neck, the sort of middle range, um, the uh, Catholic missions were much stronger through, uh, in in conjunction with um, French colonialism. So there was more conversion that way. In Guinea-Bissau, this was an isolated region. The Portuguese um, had um, a somewhat different approach to colonialism than um, either the French or the British, um, who, who were in, in Senegal and, and Gambia. Um, there, there really wasn't um, as much of a kind of an institutional effort at conversion, although there has been a longstanding Italian-sponsored Catholic mission in this region. Um, it just hasn't been able to win over very many converts. It's still about 5% of the population that's there. Um, and more recently, there's been uh, Protestant efforts from Brazil that have actually had um, a bit more success. Now, why that is, why they're particularly resistant, I think it has something to do with um, being a little bit more um, isolated um, in terms, even sort of infrastructurally. Um, there's, there's very little access to this region much less so than there, um, than even in terms of sort of roads and, and travel among different places. Um, it's not quite like it is in, in Senegal or Gambia. So there, there hasn't, the sort of isolation has kept, I think, many things 
um, intact and enabled the populations in that area to resist some of those other changes. Yeah, your book definitely uh, portrays a kind of conservative uh, tendency uh, among this village, and and you do an excellent job discussing some of the the fraught circumstances that come with the encounter of modernity or the outside or however one wants to put it with these basic institutions. But before we get into some of the changes and the tension there, I think it's important. You talk a lot about the value of work and the narrative of the ethic of work and family and different kinds of social groups in the village. So I was wondering, could you explain to us a little bit about what, what is this uh, peculiar, and I don't mean peculiar as in strange, but peculiar as in you know, uh, particular to the people, value of, of work and, and family? Yeah. So um, it, it links directly back to the peculiarity in your terms too, the particularity of what it takes to grow rice and particularly rice um, in this wet rice kind of uh, regime. Um, it takes a lot of work. It it's, a, it's a very laborious, very labor intensive uh, kind of process. It's un unlike a lot of other crops. Um, there's constant um, uh, heavy manual labor involved and constant vigilance too in maintaining really successful rice agriculture. So the, 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 the ethic around work really goes kind of hand in hand with the necessities of, uh, of rice agriculture in this, in, in this region. So, um, you know, it's hard to know ex exactly um, how that, like the sort of origins of that, I think it's sort of built up, it's mutually constitutive over time. But what has happened in terms of being able to maintain and socially reproduce uh, generation after generation, uh, uh, Jola people who, who will engage in what it takes to grow uh, to grow rice has has been um, you know emphasized through certain kinds of values, and so the the when you know it, it is appealing in in the minds of most Jola residents in this region to um, find let's say a marriage partner who is a hard worker that becomes a, a, a kind of um, a, a value that that gets written into um, thinking and um, and kind of uh, practices around marriage. It is. It is appealing and, and necessary in the socialization process when you're raising your kids to raise them as hard workers, to give them um, incentives and, and the sorts of instructions and, and the kind of discipline that ensures that you're raising hard workers. So it's kind of built into the very fabric of family life, of marriage, practices of marriage desires and, and you know, and what's appealing in, in, in marriage, particularly because the household is the really essential unit of, of production and consumption around this. Um, there's a, um, a kind of a clear division of labor and uh, a uh, within a, a conventional marriage, a husband and wife rely on each other um, for their different contributions to making this the, the rice system work. So all of that is kind of baked into the fabric of how you raise your kids, how you choose a marriage partner, how you how you continue on, um, even even in terms of cooperative work. Um, Although most of the labor is done within a family unit, there are cooperative work groups that are uh, that are kind of organized around um, gender and age within each neighborhood in every village, and and those work groups really are kind of peer pressure groups um, that insist that everybody work just as hard for each other in their in, as they rotate labor um, in each other's plots. So there's there's a lot of kind of um, institutional. 
uh, kind of fora for ensuring that people become hard workers. And then it becomes a kind of distinctive mark of ethnic pride. Dola will compare themselves to other neighboring groups that don't work quite as hard. And it's expressed very much and performed very much as something that is, um, if not totally uniquely Jola, certainly, um, uh, uh, you know, well-established as an attribute of what it means to be Jola. Yeah, and and through the book, you definitely emphasize a kind of tension that exists between the traditional social fabric of the Jola village and the world outside. Particularly, what struck me most was Partly the work emphasis, um, but also two issues uh, that are really moral issues that the community was kind of wrestling with, which they blamed the outside world for, which was uh, an increase in theft and an increase in premarital birth, uh, which I think is interesting because for people who have a maybe a more stereotypical view of Africa, I think that often you know, there's kind of the stereotype of the licentious, you know, kind of person who's um, kind of, you know, I don't want to say primitive, but that's kind of the stereotype. But we encounter a very different kind of person in Jola. So with the Jola. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about about some of those ethical values and about how they feel that they are coming under threat. Yeah, sure. So so theft is really um I, I just it's it's anathema to Jola sensibilities, right? When they when you when you talk to a, particularly an older generation um, of Jola residents in this region, um, they they will they will talk about theft as a crime that is often even worse than murder, and they they can see that there might be legitimate reasons, right, for for murder in some cases. There's never a legitimate reason for theft, and it's entirely linked to what we just talked about in terms of the work ethic. Um, stealing is, is, is an indication of, of not, of not working hard enough. If you, if you steal, it means that you're not working hard enough again in a system in which it works, in which hard work leads to, um, to successful agriculture, successful harvesting, um, you would never need to steal. And stealing is a, is one of those kind of, um, it's almost sort of like the, you know, the broken window effect. It's an indication that if, if, um, stealing became at all part of what people did to get by, everything would break down, everything would start unraveling. And, and it's, um, it's therefore very, very strictly um, enforced and sanctioned. Um, the, the, uh, then again, the older generation of residents in this region would talk about um, the kinds of punishments that would ensue if, um, if theft um, ever became apparent. And they were very harsh, um, including um, physical um, physical beatings and sometimes excommunication. There's just no room. There wasn't, there didn't used to be any room for that kind of behavior because it put a, a, a serious chink into the, this whole um, kind of necessary adherence to a certain kind of labor and work ethic. Um, the, in, in terms of um, uh, pregnancy out of, um, out, of, out of marriage, that also has to do with the links between production and reproduction in the system, right? So, so again, because the household is such a... a um, an important or was um, up until recently um, the the real important node of the whole productive system. Um, it 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 has to be kind of maintained quite strictly in terms of um, how uh, how reproduction works. And so again, the sanctions for um, for out of wedlock childbirth prior to quite recently 
um, were quite severe as well. Um, there, there, uh, certain, there were, um, many stories told of, um, of, you know, being kicked out of the village of, uh, other sorts of severe sanctions. Now that has unraveled quite a lot that has changed quite dramatically with the influx of all kinds of changes, including, um, a recognized, um, kind of uh, impossibility of maintaining uh, a, the, the livelihood strategies entirely based on rice agriculture. When it no longer works, even when you're working really, really, really hard, when it's apparent to most of the population, as it has been in just one generation, that um, no matter how hard you work, you're not going to be able to achieve um, the kind of the necessary provisioning for your family through this mode of livelihood, then all kinds of things start to change. Um, and because there's no longer these clear links between, say, production and reproduction or between work and success. So things are changing on all on, on all fronts in that regard. And that's much of what I try to document and, and talk about in the book. Um, another reason that that things have shifted on the reproduction side has to do, again, uh, is fueled by the shifts and the understanding that this is a mode of livelihood, a, a form of economic um, existence that that is um, coming apart, so that there's a lot of um, shifting in terms of how you uh, raise your children and how you invest in the possibilities for their future. Um, a lot of hopes pinned on schooling around this, and schooling being a kind of as it is in many parts of the world, certainly many parts of Africa and other parts of the world, where schooling is the way um, forward um, from a, 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 a an, an economic system that no longer works purely through, through, um, through farming. Um, what happens with schooling though, in this area is that, um, the, the schools up, up past around sixth grade are our equivalent of sixth grade are all, uh, uh, far out of the village so that kids are sent off in their early teenage years, um, to schools, um, you know, up to 50 kilometers or sometimes a couple hundred kilometers away, um, and are no longer under the strict supervision that they would be in those teenage years by their families. Um, and as you can imagine, all kinds of other things happen from there. So just as they would in many other parts of the world, um, if you can't kind of keep um, keep tabs on where your teenagers are uh, or getting their influences from and who they're hanging around, um, many of them have come back really just in this past generation um, as um, you know, uh, the, the, the girls have come back pregnant from school. Um, the boys are increasingly having multiple children with, um, various, um, of their, of, of, of the, the girls that they meet in school. Um, and then the responsibilities for those children fall more often than not on the, on their parents, on the, on the, on the, the baby's grandparents. So that's adding sort of extra burdens to what's already a kind of stressful situation, um, economically within these households. Um, so the reason that Jola blamed this all on kind of the outside, it's not, so I wouldn't go so far as to say that all of the blame is going on the outside. There's a lot of um, internal hand-wringing around this too. Um, but this is, what, what's happening is that is that um, in an area that has been able to kind of um, keep tabs and, and discipline and kind of create um, and maintain sanctions around these areas for significant for you know many centuries around this and sure there have been plenty of out, other sorts of outside influences but this is the first time that they're really seeing a kind of scattering of their children at a younger age um and that um and 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 they haven't been particularly well equipped to deal with the with the consequences that have come from that 
And I think that presents an absolutely fascinating comparison, perhaps not with the United States today, but certainly with the United States of a decade ago and and, and beginning even a couple to three decades ago, where we went through our own crisis about uh, criminality, um, unwed uh, teenage, particularly uh, pregnancies, um, and kind of a concern that the social basic elements of our social fabric w- w- was disintegrating. And it kept striking me as I was reading the book, kind of these parallels. And so I, I might be a little unfair to ask you to, 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 to draw a comparison, but do you, is there anything that you could say? Do you think there's any similarities or differences uh, between the kind of the angst and the angst over change that we experienced in the United States and some of the angst and concern that the Joel are experiencing in Guinea-Bissau? So I, I mean, I actually think the, the, the similarities runs a little bit deeper than that. I don't think that it's necessarily kind of, I wouldn't map the similarity onto the, um, the, the particular aspects of, you know, teenage pregnancy or, or criminality. I mean, I think those, you know, might resonate a little bit with that. I, th- I think it has to do with something where I see the important um, kind of uh, common human predicament isn't necessarily between, say, what's happening among Joel and Guinea-Bissau right now and what, what happened, you know, in the U.S. A, a decade or so ago. I think it has much more to do with a, a, a kind of a persistent level of uncertainty in in changing, in rapidly changing kind of economic and social situations of how, how you prepare your kids for an uncertain future. So I think what we're seeing in, in this part of Guinea-Bissau and in much of the rest of coastal West Africa, but certainly in in this part that I know a little bit better um, is that, 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 that uncertainty is heightened all the more so because of, of the confluence of a lot of different factors that are changing things quite rapidly. Now, of course, things change all the time, generation to generation, and every parent <laughs> always has a kind of a question mark about whether a particular child will be successful in the world that they imagine they need to prepare them for. But when that world no longer makes sense in such a dramatic way, then then you know entire kinds of ways of being are, are, are coming undone um, in, a, in a much more dramatic fashion. So, so I think the similarity really is about, you know, a, a kind of a persistent and a consistent level of uncertainty um, that we have, you know, I think what we what 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 bears itself out to me much more is that we can see it more clearly in a place like, you know, northwestern Guinea-Bissau, because it it, um, it comes to the surface in a way, this kind of question about no longer being able to maintain a certain set of livelihood practices that are then linked to all of these values and moral practices and socialization and even religion um, because of the the more obvious fact of a kind of set of climactic changes, right? That you can't grow rice any longer. It just doesn't sustain you any longer. And therefore, all of these other kinds of ensuing changes happen and all of these necessary sort of innovations around them have to happen. Now, that's not so dissimilar from other kinds of... um, uh, 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 moments in history and particularly our own right now where we're we're kind of meeting the limits of what we count on as our necessary resource base and and we tend to think that we can kind of invent ourselves out of it but um we don't always acknowledge just how close we are to the edge of ha- of really being able to maintain a livelihood and maintain a lifestyle that we're used to that depend on those sorts of resources so in a way 
you know, what what Joel and Guinea-Bissau have to, to sort of offer to, to teach us is a closer look at how those dynamics really are working themselves out when we see this in a moment in which people are really confronting the fact that they can no longer organize the society in the way that they have for many, many centuries. Um, and I think we can all kind of learn from that and think about, okay, what, you know, how is it that we want to be a little bit more prepared um, to deal with these sorts of shifts um, and, and a little bit more proactive in um, how we think through all of these other sorts of processes and consequences that might come from that? So I think it's a great idea to talk about some of those lessons, and I would love to hear what you think we can learn from the Jola experience. But first, we throughout this conversation, there has been the subtext of the change in the, the climactic and maybe geographical possibilities of rice cultivation that has had such a drastic impact on Jola life. And I think one of the things that comes clear in the book is this interesting relationship between the material and the immaterial, between the mode of production of rice and the mode of reproduction, as you've discussed in both social and physical, biological, human reproduction. So I was wondering if you could please make a little clear to us and, and, and go into a little more detail about what exactly are the climactic changes that are happening in Jola land and how are they impacting rice? And then maybe uh, if you can remember the question after that, um, what are some of the lessons that we can draw from the crisis or transition or change that's happening within Jola land? Yeah, sure. So, um, so this isn't a, a, a um, geographical area that ha- that has been a subject to enormous climactic changes for as long as anyone can record such data. Um, so there's so it, it's not the first time that there have been um, real shifts in um, in all kinds of um, climactic conditions. Um, in fact, the, the the wet rice agriculture system came into being because of climactic shifts in the regions that made it that made it make sense. Um, what's happening now is that there's really a kind of a combination of factors that make it no longer as um, as uh, certainly not as successful and perhaps not even tenable as it has been for a very long time. And some of those are really strictly climactic conditions. There's a decrease overall in rainfall and a concentration of the rainy season. So. Um, for the for the uh, the past fifty or so years, and there's a kind of debates about exactly when uh, some of these changes really came into being and how much they're really sort of up and down shifts versus a, a, a just a sort of steady decline. But most of the uh, meteorological um, evidence that I've seen, and most of the the kind of climactic evidence that I've that I'm aware of, really shows a steady decline overall in precipitation and then a concentration. So that whereas the rainy season used to be about five to six months and spread evenly, which allowed for a certain set of cultivation techniques over that time. Now there's there, there can be enormous amounts of, of, of rainfall, but concentrated within a one to two month period. So that becomes very difficult to kind of take full advantage of that. And there's a, a, a sort of a quick flooding um, that doesn't allow for the sorts of germination and transplanting techniques that are so uh, central to this mode of, of rice cultivation. So those are the kind of climactic conditions that it comes with then because of the decreasing rainfall, um, uh, increasing erosion of a lot of the paddy areas, um, all, all of those sorts of, of, of climactic shifts, some kind of desertification coming from the north where it's been happening quite a long time in what you know, you know as a, a, from your own experience from Mauritania coming increasingly southward towards this region. Now, the, if it was just about climate, I think it would be, um, 
I don't think it would be quite as um, compelling or perhaps even dramatic as, as um, when we put climate into a whole set of concurrent economic and political shifts. So what's also happening here is that there's been um, a really long-term kind of negligence of um, of inputs, of new sorts of inputs and of, and of the kinds of support mechanisms that would enable agriculture to um, to to kind of meet and rise to the challenges that might come from shifting kinds of climactic um, and other conditions. So um, we know from the the sort of mid to late colonial period onward that the emphasis um, economically was on increasing growth of cash crops to um, really sustain the metropoles in this area to kind of feed into um, the. Uh, the economic system and the cash economy that the colonial authorities were particularly interested in promoting. Um, so a shift towards cash crops and a shift away from subsistence crops um, that were meant to, to, to keep um, the, a, a lot of the, the local farming practices intact in terms of the way that those societies were sustaining themselves. That So in Senegal, we saw that happen a lot with groundnuts. Increasingly in Guinea-Bissau, that happens with cashew nuts. Um, that meant a kind of dis um, a, a, a disengagement and a and a, um, a lack of investment in um, in basic staple crops like rice. Um, that continued into the colonial era with an emphasis, particularly in sort of national development and, and international development, um, that focused primarily on um, urban infrastructural issues. So again, rural areas were left very much kind of neglected. Um, and even though they've sort of popped up every now and then in, and, and received moments of attention in, um, in sort of uh, efforts in the area to look at, at um, kind of long-term sustainability issues, they haven't really been at the, on, on the forefront of, um, of those sorts of either national or international um, support efforts for, uh, for a very long time. So all of that kind of combines um, and uh, among you know various other factors to really um, make this a um, a pretty severe situation um, o- over the last uh, again generation um, or getting going on to two generations now. So so it, so it is that combination of factors and and you know Jola themselves were very uh, very clear on all of these different kinds of factors involved. They were absolutely able um, to articulate this as a problem. Um, it's why I shifted my own research to respond to that because when I first moved to this area, um, this was in, um, in, in 2001 and I first moved there and I had a very different set of research interests, right. And, and the conversations that I was having kept coming back to this set of issues over and over and over again. It's really what people wanted to talk about. And, you know, um, there, there's at, at a certain point, I was like, I just, I don't want to talk about the rice anymore. I wasn't interested in rice. And it, I, I had to do my own, you know, mental shift to say, oh, yeah, this is really what I need to focus on. I need to learn about this, because this is obviously, right at the center of what they are anxious about and what they want to talk about. And it's clearly affecting um, most of what they're kind of thinking about and doing in their own lives. So I need to understand it better. Um, and I and I sort of had to get myself over that, like, oh, my God, I'm having the same conversation over and over again. Can't we talk about what I want to talk about, you know, everyone has a sort of ethnographic, I think you sort of hit a wall where you're like, okay, you know, shift gears. And, and now I'm, I'm, I'm fully on board and trying to understand what it is they're so anxious about and why and how it's, how I can kind of understand that in a longer history, but also in a much more kind of multifaceted way in terms of how this isn't just about rice itself, but how it's connected to all of these other kinds of dimensions of, um, of Jola life. 
So, so that's where <laughs> that that's where the the focus in my own research kind of shifted to look at this. But again, because it was really coming out of a clear understanding from Jola themselves that this was really um, coming to a head, that it was a problem in a way that that they knew was different than than things that they had experienced before, than things that their grandparents or great grandparents had talked about. Um, even though they certainly had all sorts of challenges and problems too um, within their own time. So, um, yeah. So, so that's I think a, the, a kind of a sum up of what what these um, overall what the overall situation is at least um, when I arrived on the scene there. Um, now, I kind of have a, a tried to avoid using the word crisis for this because I don't think it's actually a particularly helpful word, nor a nor an accurate one, even though it sounds like it's quite challenging there and it can sound quite um, daunting and dismal at times. But I'm a bit um, cautious about using the word crisis because I think it doesn't quite capture what's going on there. And it's also not particularly helpful in terms of how you address it. I think the problem, especially again in development circles with using the word crisis is that, um, that, that it enables a sort of thinking and a, and a, and a set of practices that it's, it's sort of rushed uh, to, to solve a crisis. I don't think there's a way to rush and solve this one. I think we have to really be careful about understanding what it is that Jola are making of this as a problem. Um, they don't use the word crisis around this in, in any of the languages that are available for them to use. Um, and they are constantly coming up with largely, ex, you know, sort of individual or family-based um, ways to figure out what to do about this. Um, and that's a particularly Jola way of, of orienting themselves to this set of challenges. There, there aren't very many kind of um, uh, uh, collective or public fora for decision-making. There are ritual ways to address this, and those are, are certainly taken up in a number of ways. But, but a lot of this is happening, again, on a household basis. Um, so there's, there's, you know, um, I, I, uh, uh, even though there's a sort of a consistency in articulating the problem, there's an enormous variation in how um, different people within, with, across all of the, the villages in this area, are trying to address this as a as a set of problems. Yeah. So, um, as you discussed earlier, you mentioned that there might be some lessons that we could draw from from the Jola, uh, maybe either just in terms of development or for ourselves. What do you think some of those lessons might be? So I'm, yeah, uh, that's a a great question. Um, Let's see. I think, I think one of, one of the ways that I would want to um, perhaps think about what um, a better understanding of this particular case can do for us is to really understand um, just how um, complicated the relationship is just picking up on kind of where we left off on that, that last little bit, how complicated the relationship is between understanding what a problem is and coming up with the solution to it. Um, we tend to think of that relationship as kind of, um, isomorphic in, you know, even in the most sort of progressive, you know, kind of consciousness raising or development kind of, you know, frarian ways. Um, we think like, Oh, if, if, if people understand the problem, then of course we'll be able to figure out the solution. And one of the things that's been interesting for me ethnographically, um, in being immersed in, you know, in, in this, uh, in, you know, among Jola residents in this area with people sort of talking about it in all these different ways is just how complicated that relationship is. And I think that has kind of profound impact for our understanding our own social action, and our own political action, right? We, you know, we shouldn't 
simplify that link as much as we do <laughs> between like being able to say, here's the problem, therefore, you know, this leads us directly to a solution. I think we need to understand a little bit more about just how um, complicated and fraught that link can be, that it's not, it's not as direct as I think we've assumed it to be in, in many other cases, even in, in our own lives. Um, the, the other piece of this that I think it's really important to learn is, is, to, under, is to get a sense of just how um, necessary it is to, under, to, to, to um, appreciate the multifaceted aspects of what's going on here as a problem. So, you know, we can look at this and say, oh, this is a problem of, right, of climate that leads to a change in livelihood, right, into an economic system. The economic system is falling apart. They can't grow rice anymore. Therefore, let's figure out something else for them to grow, right? Or let's figure out something else um, for them to kind of, you know, have a, a, a basis for economic wherewithal. One of the things that is so important that I, that I, that took me a while to kind of learn through, again, the ways that Jola are responding to the current situation in along all these different lines is just how deeply enmeshed um, livelihood or economic strategies or any of the sort of like things that we might call provisioning are to values that don't seem on the surface to have anything to do with it. So the whole, even like we talked about hard work, right? Hard work becomes a, a, a value, sure, perhaps linked with a certain set of, you know, agricultural practices, but then it, it's still a, a, a kind of a value that um, needs to be thought about in its own terms, right? How did Jola maintain their sense of the value of hard work, even when they can no longer grow rice necessarily in the way that they have been? Is it something that they need to kind of think about as um, and, and support by some other sorts of mechanisms in order to still feel like they are Jola, right? That they, that they are the, the kind of, that they're living the kind of moral and ethical life that they deem valuable. And so this is sort of a long circuitous route around it, but the part of the point is to say, we can't just extract what looks like an economic or even a, you know, a, a, an, a, uh, an agricultural problem, a technical problem outside of a, um, of, of its context in which it's really linked to moral and social and religious and other kinds of ideals and other kinds of, um, uh, of institutions. And so it's this, I think we can learn from that in saying we are, we tend often to separate out our domains of, uh, 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 of, you know, whichever kind of society we, we think we belong to, right. Um, into kind of spheres of political and economic and social and religious life. And I, I kind of think that, you know, again, we can see it a little bit maybe more evidently in, um, in the, the, the village world of Jola, but I think it speaks to some of the ways that we might want to think more carefully about how intertwined these things are when we approach our own problems. Yeah, I think that's that's a great observation because one of the things that struck me reading this book again and talking to other people who are interested in development, particularly economists, is this idea of Bojola and work and rice. And I think a lot of development thinkers, even when they're trying to really kind of be ethnographic, if I can use that as a term in the sense, in thinking about problems in development can say, oh, well, rice is really important to them. So, you know, if we could just help them make more of it with forgetting that 
you know, maybe the work itself is so highly valued that, you know, all things being equal, they might prefer the less efficient way of producing it because it gives them a sense, a chance to realize that, that effectual quality, which, which uh, I think is interesting to think about in terms of, you know, what kinds of benchmarks do we set when we think about developmental programs and what really needs to be quote unquote improved in a given situation. Exactly. Or improved or fixed or anything like that. That's a, that's exactly the point. And, and in a way, you know, what I was trying to do in, in the, in the book was, was um, something that, you know, I, I think is at the heart of um, anything that, that uh, ethnography can contribute to, which is that, um, we we try to not assume divisions along the lines, divisions in you know the ways we sort of imagine a society to work along the lines that that are built into the way we have them, right? So so one, it's an exposure of the ways that things might be linked in in um, across several kinds of domains that we um, that that are perhaps at first blush unfamiliar to us, and to see how important those links can be, right? In other world, but but it's also, you know, speaking directly to, as you say, a sort of development approach that tries to do a sort of the, the fix or the improvement without really understanding how it doesn't necessarily make sense within um, the larger frame of how things are imagined and connected um, in, in any given particular society. Now, we have to be really careful and and not uh, not um, take this kind of, <laughs> of of line that you know that um, that we need to keep things intact in a certain way. It's Joel are, are obvious, like any place, like any set of people are changing all the time, and they're changing in ways um, that are that might look like um, certainly as every generation <laughs> sees the next generation might look like it flies in the face of tradition. They're being in, you know, incredibly resourceful and and inventive and in, and innovative in all kinds of ways in the face of this set of predicaments. Um, what's interesting to look at is the kinds of things that they are emphasizing that are still integral, that are still really important in terms of their own sense of what is a meaningful life. And those are the sorts of things that I think ethnography can expose because it takes time to figure that out. And we invest that time as ethnographers. And then to translate that um, for not only perhaps a hypothetical development person working, whether in Guinea-Bissau or elsewhere, that can also then incorporate that into their understanding of where the heart of the matter lies and whatever they're kind of trying to look at, but also for ourselves, for, for ourselves to do that own sort of process of saying, okay, yeah, we, we are all faced with a sort of uncertain future. What is it that we want to hold on to and we want to maintain as a kind of core value as we sort of figure out the rest of the pieces that go around that? So I think that's the process that the Joler are, are immersed in right now. And it's a, it's sometimes very um, uh, um, daunting for them and for observers to, to see and to be a part of, but it's, I think, very deeply part of what it means to, um, to be human. And that's what we as anthropologists try to capture all the time through, through these sorts of ethnographies. Absolutely. Anthropology is, I, I like to think, a, a, a human story told through very particular instances. And, I, and this book is a great example of that. So we're coming to the end of the hours. And the, so the last question I'd like to ask you is, 
what 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 goes on from here? So both with the Jolo, the, this book was published in 2016. So there's, and I assume you probably finished writing it a little before then. So in the three years or so since the book's has been finished, what's what's happened? In, has anything happened in Jolo land that's significant? And what are your next projects? Are you going back to West Africa or moving on? Yeah. Um, well, let me let me take each of those uh, pieces in turn. Um, things are happening all the time in Jola Land, and I um, uh, the last time that I was there was in in 2016. Um, I was able to bring uh, copies of the book um, to uh, to the main village where I hang out, and um, and re- and it's it's written in English, so I did some uh, quick um, uh, off the cuff translation in a number of read aloud sessions, and got lots of great um, feedback and opinions and reactions back from. Um, uh, some of my closest friends and interlocutors there. Um, the, these are these are ongoing issues for sure. Um, there, although I um, I think a next version of them is already so much underway that I, if I were to start writing the book now, I would have um, I, I would have another. You know, I could I could build from what I've done already, but have another <laughs> whole new set of insights um, and 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 certainly another set of stories um, to tell about what's what is happening next. Um, in terms of very quickly, broad brushstrokes of what's happening there, um, many of the things that I chart in the books are, are, are continuing and intensifying in terms of increasing um, out-migration of youth um, and, and, and even further dependence on schooling, um, certainly increasing breakdown of um, conventional um, marriage mores. Um, very few people get married anymore, but there's um, lots and lots of kids all around. Um, and so, again, a, a, an increasing kind of tension between um, conventional uh, relationship between production and reproduction in the household being the center of that. Um, and then all kinds of other changes that are happening, you know, similar to other parts of rural, uh, rural West Africa, where there is increasing connectivity, right? Um, whether that is through um, media technologies, this is still a place that's actually quite hard to get to and, and relatively less connected. Um, I, you know, I, um, still have trouble staying in touch with anybody when I'm not actually there. Um, there is a new cell phone tower nearby, but not really, not very many people have cell phone service. Um, there's still no electricity, no running water, none of those kinds of basic infrastructural things in the area. Um, and, um, and most people are, um, uh, still very much dependent on a kind of a day to day getting by, um, uh, kind of scraping things together increasingly around other sorts of agricultural techniques. So they have, whereas before they were kind of resistant to uh, the influx of cashews that's happened in the rest of the country. Now they're really dependent on that. And many of them have cashew orchards and trade um, cashews for imported rice. Um, There's other kinds of uh, uh, ways in which they're just sort of getting by for now. So all of those are continuing to unfold there. Um, As far as my involvement, I, um, so I, keep going back, I would love to be able to spend more and increasing time there. Um, that becomes harder and harder uh, with the other demands of an academic and family life. Um, I will be going back again this spring, probably in March for a chunk of time. Um, and my focus has um, has increasingly shifted towards um, particular kind of transformations in women's roles there. So I am working on a next book that looks at um, marriage um, in particular, and and what I'm calling sort of unmarriage, the opting out of marriage, um, widowhood as another piece of that puzzle, uh, and shifts in, um, in particularly motherhood, but overall parenting practices. So that's my next um, 
take on all of this. Um, I've, I've also shifted to look at, you know, I, I feel like I've said pretty much everything I could possibly say about rice in this region. So I'm not as focused on that. But even when I'm looking at things like um, married women's songs, which is this wonderful genre of songs that I've been uh, kind of decoding for the last couple of years, uh, it's impossible to really fully get at what's behind these songs without reference in some ways to rice. It always comes back to rice for Jola, at least for now. So even though I feel like I've, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sated as far as my own reflections on rice, you can never really fully get away with it with Jola. So I'm sure that rice will make an appearance, but it won't be center stage in, in whatever I write next um, about this area. But I, again, it's a place that I love going back to. I have very, very strong personal ties there now, personal and um, kind of, you know, sort of kinship ties with um, several families um, that I um, really miss when I'm gone. So I, I love going back there. My family has um, been there too. Um, and we have kind of increasing links um, across even my next generation of, of kids, my own kids. So um, I will keep going back there. Um, I will keep trying to tell um, compelling stories that emerge from my interactions with people there, um, and um, and and hopefully they'll they'll just keep having me there. So I I I'd love uh, it, it's a it's a place where you know if if you've for a number of reasons you know when you when you when you know another language you know you have a piece of your personality that's kind of oh, only can get expressed through that language. So when you don't get to speak that language very much, that piece of you sort of lies dormant. And every time I go back there and I get to speak Jola and Criolu, the two main languages there, that part comes alive again. And, and you can actually feel that kind of um, almost physically. It's a really wonderful feeling. And so I love going back there and and sort of um, having that part come awake again and, and reconnecting with the people that I care about deeply there. And um, and just having our, you know, growing even older with them has been a source of immense, both personal and also Kind of ethnographic um, pleasure and insight. Well, that's uh, that's too great a note to have anything follow it. So <laughs> I think we'll end it there. And uh, thank you for coming, Professor Davidson. And the next book sounds great. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to have you on when that's published and finished. <laughs> thank you so much, Jeff. This has been really fun. Thanks for listening to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast on the New Books Network.